everyone. Can you, uh, can you hear me there nice and clearly? Um, Pete and I were just discussing there whether we have a shorter response or we just have a longer service this morning um, because of all God's doing. Um, who knows? Um, but it is uh, brilliant, isn't it? And thank you, um, Sam, um, for all that you've done um, in terms of leading us in worship. Um, just a reminder of where we've been over the last few weeks. Um, Steve was uh, preaching uh, two weeks ago on Judas and betrayal. And then last week we had Vision Sunday. I do encourage you that if you weren't here last week, do get hold of the recording. And there was some great stuff shared and, of course, prayed about as well because we spent a lot of time in prayer. That was absolutely brilliant. And as one or two people have shared, uh, it has been an interesting week. So uh, if I... You know what you sometimes do, or maybe it's just me, when you talk, you flip your words around. So rather than saying, nice to see you, you say, to see you nice, or that kind of thing. So if I do any of that, just smile at me and nod, and just give me that encouragement that we need um, when you, you flip those, those words around. Um, we do love having a granddaughter. We really, really do. It's absolutely wonderful until she screams at three o'clock in the morning. And then we realize why we are not parents and don't... Um, have any young children and bless those if you do have young children or expecting we bless you and we think you are very no not very brave you are brilliant people uh, bringing up the new generation in all faith and encouragement Phew, got out of that one uh, okay um, but it is oh it is one of those um, sermons today that's been tough to get to so I do pray that God will bless you and challenge you today um, from what God has put on my heart and my heart for you. Um, and it's to do with uh, Peter and his denial of Jesus. Passages we know well and we'll read in a minute. But there's a lot here about failure as well. I don't know about you, I don't like the word failure. I don't like talking about it. But there's a sense here of Peter's failure. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And I've actually changed the title slightly. I'm going to start off by just reading um, a little story, a little testimony. Um, uh, Whilst well, I say read it, kind of summarizing it from a book that I'm reading at the moment. I haven't brought it today. It's about this thick. Um, and it's the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who many of you will know. And for those that don't know, the subtitle is Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. I think if you just flip on a couple of, um, you should see a picture of him up there. Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. And in order to get you really into the story, I'm going to have to give a little bit of background, which some of you will know, and maybe some of you won't. Um, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the story is taken from 1933. So this is the time in Germany when Hitler just won his first election. And he was just a minority government, but suddenly things were changing quickly in Germany. They were changing very quickly in the communities around, in politics, but also for the church. They were seeing the rise of the Third Reich in Germany. And it was really that decision that Bonhoeffer had to make. How could he speak out against some of the things that were saying? Respectfully, but he was a, if I would say, quite an academic man. He had 
really good connections within Germany, within the universities. He was an academic, but he wanted to have a voice. Now, no one at the time knew what the Nazis would become. They didn't know what was happening, but it just felt uncomfortable, the changes. Now, the Third Reich developed a, I don't know what you'd call it, a philosophy, a theology of the church, and they called it the German church. We want to have one church in Germany, so we're all together, controlled by the Nazis, of course. We want to have one church, one pure church that's all together. And that church, of course, needs to be made up of Germans, pure Germans, not necessarily the Jews who are polluting our society. And that was a real challenge for the churches, and they made all sorts of different decisions about it. Do we go with the, the flow of the day, who seems to be supporting the church, but not quite what we think, and try and get in from the inside and change it? Or do we oppose it and speak against it and risk our lives and our families and our livelihoods? What do we do? And Bonhoeffer perhaps did this better than anybody else. But he didn't always get it right. In 1933, he was asked to take a funeral. Now, this was a funeral of some friends of his. They said, please, can you take my father's funeral? And he said, yes, um, I will speak at your father's funeral. But then he realized this man was a Jew. And not only that, but he hadn't any confessed any sort of faith in Jesus. So it's going to be a difficult one for him to do as a Christian pastor. And so he sought advice from a number of people who said, no, don't get involved. You never know what will happen to you. And so he said to his friend, I'm not going to speak at the funeral. He obviously reflected on this. And this is how he felt about his decision. He said, I'm tormented even now by the thought that I didn't do what you asked me to do as a matter of course. To be frank, I can't think what made me behave as I did. How could I have been so horribly afraid at that time? It must have seemed equally incomprehensible to you both, yet you said nothing. But it preys on my mind because it's the kind of thing no one can ever make up for. So all I can do is ask for you to forgive me for my weakness then. I know for certain I should have behaved differently. You can feel the anguish, can't you, in his voice. He got it wrong. He should have got it right. He should have been the one to understand and to make the right decision. I'm just going to raise this up a little bit. Sorry, Pete. I'm just going to raise it up a little bit so it's a little bit higher. He should have got it right, but he didn't. However, I know that as I go through the book, I'm about a third the way through, he is going to be somebody who is a great example of somebody who did stand up, at times quietly, at times academically, at times with action, and was even involved with an attempt on Hitler's life. Quite how much, I don't know, because I haven't got to that part of the book. But... He then did eventually pay the ultimate price for his faith. But even he, at that very beginning, in 1933, made the decision that he thoroughly regretted. Let me 
move on to our verses today. There'll be verses that will be familiar to many of you. I've got two sets of verses. Um, They're both in Luke chapter 22. Um, I'm going to read 31 to 34, and then the linked verses in 54 to 62. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cockerel will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Luke 22:54 now to 62. Then they seized him and led him away, that is Jesus, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking at him closely, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, you do not, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the cockerel crowed. And the Lord turned And looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. Of how he said to him. Before the cockerel crows today. You will deny me three times. And he. Went out. And wept. Bitterly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus we come to these challenging. uh, Verses. Lord Jesus we just pray that you will speak to us. Lord, I pray you'd use my words much more eloquently than I can get them out, Lord. And you will speak powerfully. Lord, we don't want to be the same coming to church as when we leave. Lord, we want to be changed by your word and by your Holy Spirit. Will you come now, Lord, by the power of your spirit? Mighty Jesus, mighty Lord. Okay, I'm just going to start with a little bit of context. So, before Jesus talked about Simon Peter and denying him, what was happening in Luke? We've done a study on Luke, so I'm sure a lot of you will remember that it was the disciples arguing about who was the greatest. That was the context for this. They were saying, no, I'm the greatest. No, it's me. No, it's me that should be sitting at Jesus' right hand. Interesting. That was the context for all of this. And then I'm just going to move through some of the feelings of Peter because I think we need to feel the emotion if we haven't felt it yet and to understand why Peter did what he did and why he was there before we can really grasp some of the issues. 
In verse 56, you have Jesus sitting by the fire. Nice. And he was with the servant girl and others, but everyone else has deserted. In fact, one of the gospels said there might have been somebody else who tried to come in and then went away, but actually everyone else had gone away. He didn't know what was happening to Jesus. He was, Jesus was in the chief priest's house. They didn't know if he was being beaten. He didn't know what, Jesus was, what was happening to Jesus. He didn't know what was happening, but he knew that it wasn't good. And there was that element of fear that dripped in. You notice the element of fear with Dietrich Bonhoeffer as well. There was an element of fear. What happened? What will happen if they know who I am? And then the servant girl asked him. That's the first one, isn't it? A servant girl. Not a centurion. Not the leader of the chief priest guards. But a servant girl. Just said, weren't you with him? Wasn't it you? And suddenly that fear went up. Oh my word, what do I say? Will I end up in there? What, what will happen? What, what can I do? And then once it started... No, 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 it wasn't me. And again, no, 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 it wasn't. I'm, I wasn't with him. No, 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 no. I wasn't with him. And then we have that, that kind of the sound. You can almost hear it, the cock called crowing, isn't it? Or the rooster, as comes up in many of our Americanized Bibles. You can almost hear that, can't you? And then that feeling in his heart. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus said would happen. And there's this amazing picture. I don't know if you can see it in your mind's eye in verse 61, where it said, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, I didn't think Peter could see Jesus all this time. But somehow, maybe it was through a window. Maybe Jesus was being taken from one place to another. I don't know. But Jesus' his face, his, his face turned around and looked at Peter. And Peter just had that feeling. Oh, no. I've got it wrong. I failed. I've denied Jesus. And then we have, in verse 62, these really powerful words. And he went out and wept bitterly. Can you feel that emotion? He's failed. All those hopes. He was going to be the one who said, don't worry, I've got a sword. I'll chop off somebody's ear. Wasn't he? That's what he did. He was the one who's going to be there. Hopefully as the leader on that rock. He will build my church. We're going to be the leader, wasn't he? But he had failed and he knew it. It was gone. Absolutely gone. All his desires in life. All his plans for Jesus. All his things that he's going to do. Oh no, it's all gone in his mind. He had deeply failed. And that was the feeling. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, when we're looking at failure? And we're going to talk a bit more about that later because we've all failed in somewhere or other, haven't we? And actually, sometimes just that word failure makes us feel uncomfortable. But I just want to say, first of all, what it isn't, and then say what it is. And first of all, I just want to refer you back Two weeks ago, to Jesus', to Jesus's, <laughs> to Steve's fantastic sermon. Not Jesus' fantastic sermon, sorry, Steve. Even though you're dressed in white. Uh, to Steve's fantastic sermon 
um, a couple of weeks ago about Judas's betrayal. And that is distinctly different. Because Jesus was not repentant. He might have regretted it. There was a sense of deliberate nature. There was a sense of somebody who was not saved. That was different. In a way, that was final and led to his death. That was different. That is not a place as Christians where we can go. But Peter, who denied Jesus three times, was clearly repentant and knew Jesus as his saviour and lord. So this is a different situation. In a way, this is a situation in Christians we can relate to in some way or other. It's very interesting, and I'm, and I'm jumping around a bit, but going back to verse 32, Jesus said at the beginning, but I have prayed for you, that's Simon Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He used that word fail there. I prayed for you that it wouldn't fail. And he did, didn't he? He then failed. I prayed you'd failed. And then it said, and when you have turned again, so we have failure, we then have turned again, and we then have strengthen your brothers. So it was even right back then, when Jesus was prophesying about what was happening, he was seeing the sense of failure, turning again, and strengthening the brothers. And that's what was happening here. Now, I'm just going to look a little bit at that word fail, because it's not a word that I like. I can remember, and I might have mentioned this before, I went on a, a school trip once, and you know you have all those, well, maybe you don't if you're not teachers, but you, you've probably all been on a school trip. You play some games if, you, if, you're, if you're there of an evening, and one of the games we were playing was um, guessing things about other people. And uh, one of the questions was, uh, what's your greatest fear? And I thought, I don't have any. Oh, I do have some fears. And actually, for me, it's failure. I feared failure. In that moment of mucking around and having great fun, going on zip wires, all sorts of things as you do. Foolish teachers we are sometimes, aren't we? All those kind of things you do, there was that sense of realisation that actually within me, oh my word, failure would be the thing that I would fear most. And that word, failure in verse 32, the idea of failing, dying out, coming to an end, to be defunct, it's tough, isn't it? And I'm just going to push into that word, not because I want to depress you all this morning, but because I think it's important. If Jesus said it, it's important to look at, isn't it? And that word comes out another couple of times in the New Testament. And it's quite difficult to pick out in the sentences, but see if you can. One of them is Hebrews 1 verse 12. You don't have to turn to it. And this says, they will perish, but you will remain they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up, like a garment, they will be changed. Very much a feeling of the end times, isn't it? And they will all wear out. It's worn out. Finished. Failed. And then Luke 23, verse 45, just after the resurrection, this word is used again. It said, when the sun's light failed... And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Quite a nice feeling, that, isn't it? Failed. The light failed. The light ended. But the curtain was torn in two. That 
rescue of Jesus was hinted at. How powerful is that? So there is that sense within Peter, and we know we don't leave him there because we've got the rest of the story of that utter failure. You're going to have to come with me a little bit on my next thought. And um, if you're not with me, just wave your hands at some stage. Okay? Because I feel there is something else here that's alluded to all the way through. So let's go back again into the story. We've got Peter right at the beginning of, um, you know, Jesus has just been taken away, hasn't he, um, by the chief priest. He's gone to the chief priest's house. And then Peter comes up in verse 55. Uh, Let me just read it all so you're back with us. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. So there was Peter with his sword. Brave Peter. And what was his first action? He sat down and warmed himself by the fire. Interesting, isn't it? Because that's not criticized at all that he sat down and did nothing, is it? The criticism there is in the denial later. He wasn't witnessing. He wasn't talking to those people. Gosh, it's great. Do you know what me tell you about Jesus? He wasn't thinking of taking the sword and chopping off ears. You know, the chief priest's head could be a great one, couldn't it? He wasn't, if you like, in the absolute action. No. He was quiet. And he stopped. And he did Nothing for that moment. Okay, this is the bit where you might have to come. I've got a little um, phrase that should come up here that uh, we use many times. Evil triumphs when good men do nothing. Is that true? Is it? Is it biblical? No. There's elements of truth to it. But is it biblical? Because sometimes we can say this is a great thing and we believe in it, but we want to test it against the Bible, don't we? And say, is this actually biblical? Because I think there is a time when actually being silent as a Christian is the right thing to do. There's a time for action. Yeah, there's the time to pick up the sword, not physically pick up the sword like Joshua was, running around with the sword this morning. We all saw him, didn't we? I was waiting for somebody to get cut. Um, But there's a time, isn't there, for the sword, but there's also a time to stop and to pray, isn't there? And there might be a time when you're challenged in your faith and actually your response might be to stop and to pray. Let me just come a little bit, because I can see one or two think that I've lost, completely lost the plot here. So let me just, just go a little bit with this. There were many times, weren't there, when Jesus stopped what he did and went to a quiet place to pray. He could have preached more. He could have taught more to people. He could have done that extra healing, but he stopped. There were times when they asked Jesus about who he was, the chief priests and the Sanhedrin, and he didn't respond. He was quiet. And that, in that moment, there was power, wasn't there? In that moment was power. There are a couple of biblical, other biblical examples you may 
be thinking of other ones, but there's a couple of people that I picked out who were in difficult positions, sometimes in positions of power, but at times kept quiet. Think of Nicodemus, the one that came to Jesus to ask about him. We get some of the, the great phrases of Jesus this morning, you must be born again. Yes? He was a ruler of the Jews that came to Jesus by night, quietly. He was somebody who had at times to be quiet about what he thought and to take action at other times. Joseph of Arimathea. Yes, you'll remember him, the one that collected uh, Jesus' body. He asked for Jesus' body, didn't he? He was a disciple of Jesus. That's what it says about him. He was a member of the council, member of the Jewish. He was a man of power. He was a man of, would have had all sorts of times when he said, well, actually, that's not right. I think this should happen. And there is a hint, biblically, that he did sometimes fear speaking out when maybe he should have. But it did give him the opportunity to collect the body of Jesus. He did have, he did have his moment, if you like, in history, where God was prompting him to do the right thing. So, as I'm looking at this, I'm looking at, I've got betrayal, I've got denial, and I've got silence. And I suppose we have action at the other end as well. I've got this kind of continuum in my mind. Are you with me? Yeah? Good. Not too many people shaking their heads as if I've lost it, so I can't be, can't be too bad this morning. But I think there is a time for silence. There is a time for not responding, and sometimes our response can be worse than being quiet. Not always, because we are called to have an answer for our faith, but there is a time for that. And then as I was um, praying and, and, and think, considering this, God was drawing me back to that sense of failure that Peter felt. And so if we're going to draw to an application to this, it's really to do with how we respond to failing. Um, John Piper, uh, a preacher, theologian from the US that many of you will know, says this about Peter's failure. He said, Peter's failure did not define him. It was a horrible, humbling stumble along the path of following Jesus when Jesus died on the cross, he completely paid for the sin of Peter's denial. Not guilty was the final word for Peter. He knew he did not deserve acquittal. But Jesus had settled Peter's account with the Father and gave him guiltlessness as the free gift of love. He was not Peter the denier, but Peter the forgiven. And as Christians, we are those, aren't we? who have been forgiven, haven't we? Forgiven much. And that's where we want to be. And that's what this story needs to remind us of. That however much we failed, whether that is yesterday, or you still think about things that happened a while ago, and think, yeah, well, actually, whatever, you know, people are cheerful at church, but essentially I'm just a failure. 
or whether it's things that even go back to childhood, because I know some of us still think about those. In Jesus, we are made new. We are born again. Again, these will be verses that you'll know well. And this is Jesus, if you like, helping Simon Peter to turn round his mentality of failure. John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep, or feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. There was a real sense of restoration. Not that just he was saved. Not that just that he knew Jesus, but that he'd restored him to somebody who would pay a huge leadership role in Acts, wouldn't he? The Peter who was there preaching at Pentecost. The preacher who wrote some of the New Testament. This is the very one who denied Jesus. Just to continue to quote John Piper, just because I think his words really sum up what I want to say today. John Piper said this, one of Peter's good friends later wrote, for we all stumble in many ways, James 3 verse 2. This is very true. When Jesus chose us to be his disciples, he knew our future failures as sure as he knew Peter's. We may be surprised by our own depravity, but Jesus isn't. We may be tempted to say, that's not the real me, but it is. Facing and admitting our failures is one way that Jesus teaches us what the gospel is. Our failures show us what we really are, great sinners. But that's not what Jesus wants us to focus on. He wants us to look at the cross and allow our failures to show us that Jesus is a great saviour. And that's my heart today, really. Because I think there are people here, and I know I'm one of them, that often discounts ourselves because of stuff that we've done. Or we haven't done. That's sin, isn't it? Doing the things we should do, or not doing the things... Oh, have I got it wrong? Let me try that again. Not doing the things we should do and doing the things we shouldn't. Did I get it right? Brilliant. Thank you for being with me this morning. But that's it, isn't it? But we need to know that turnaround. We need to know that as we repent and go to him, he doesn't look at our failures anymore, and so we shouldn't either. And I don't think that's just for those who've shall I say, lived a while, and those that haven't lived quite so long. I think that's for all of us, isn't it? 
But there's still some I sense in my spirit even now. say, like, yeah, but he doesn't mean me. No, I do. I mean all of us. That he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. That's the whole gospel, isn't it? That's the whole good news. That's why we're sitting here not watching the cricket. Sorry, the cricket's going on, always in my mind. But that's why we're here, isn't it? Because of the good news of Jesus. I think um, rather than finishing off as I was going to, I'm going to just stop it there. And uh, I just, I think it might be worth us just standing in a minute, if you can, and just considering the extent that Jesus' death and and resurrection has redeemed us. And not allowing ourselves to go back to, but I did this, but I was a failure, but to move forward. We talked last week, didn't we, about the vision of the church, the great things that we're thinking about here, the great vision we have for the next year or so. But we can't do that if we spend the whole time going back, but Actually, I'm like this because we have to look forward to the great thing Jesus is calling us to because we are redeemed, we are saved, we are renewed, and in Him we have a hope and a purpose. Shall we stand?